You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest is Dan Ozzie. Dan is a journalist and author of the new book, Sellout, which chronicles the journey of 11 bands over 11 chapters from Green Day to Against Me as they signed to major labels. It's a fascinating and insightful dive into some of the most influential records to us as the Menzingers uh, and myself. I also found it to be a storied and well-researched exploration of moral choices in art and how that fits into our economy and society here in our subculture's corner of the world. I cannot recommend it enough. There is a link to buy that shit in the show notes. Go get it. It's fucking awesome. Uh, as you'll hear a little ways into the podcast, the house music kicked in on a massive PA system on the floor above us, but we did the best we could to clean it up, and for that, I apologize, but hey, you know, rock and roll. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Here we are. So I have to admit, I haven't read the full book, but I've read it. <laughs> I just gave it to you 10 minutes ago. Sure, sure. You're telling me that you haven't read yeah, all 450 yeah. pages? I did get to read uh, the first couple chapters, and I read the last chapter today as well. So oh, cool. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, but the first thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, so there's one each chapter has a band making a giant jump, making a big leap, you know, depending on how they had treated the idea beforehand when they're signed to a major label. But I want to ask if you have made a big jump yourself. Have you ever, I know you recently moved to yeah. the West Coast. That was kind of a big deal. Have you kind of ever just ran right off the deep end with anything? Well, it's funny because I, even though I was documenting bands, there were so many parallels that I felt akin to. And right from the start, when I was like selling the book, I was like making this big jump and like, to me it was a big thing. I was like, I'm going to sell my precious little art to somebody. And you go into these offices, very skeptical. You're like, D are you deserving of my book? <laughs> and I, you know, I talked to all these bands and they would say, you know, we would talk to this A&R guy, that A&R guy, and they just like, didn't get our band. Yeah. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> well, there we are. We are in the basement of the 89 North venue in uh, Patchogue. Patchogue, can pronounce that right? Patchogue, Long Island. Patchogue, Long Island. And they're blasting music, so hopefully Listen. we get them stopped. Listeners will just deal with that. I think yeah. it adds to it. You'll, you're going to get sued, for sure. Yeah, oh, for sure. You're yeah, going to have to pay royalties thing. on this. Hell yeah. We'll see. We're in, uh, uh, yeah, in the basement <laughs> office of many venues before. There's a big safe, uh, Raptor Seats. I love nice it. gentleman popping into the room. <laughs> 
No, sure. Thank you so much for letting us use the use the room. Appreciate it. Um, so yeah, so I felt I felt many kinships with the bands that I was documenting. Another one too is just like publishing is weird because it's just one of those industries where companies acquire other companies and sure. companies merge, and that happened to so many bands in the book in the mid two thousands when like record labels were merging or just yeah. acquiring other ones and you were worried about getting like shelved and i was like oh god is that gonna happen to me is yeah. like my book gonna get just like slip through the cracks or something like that but yeah can that so that could happen in publishing years you can get shelved so essentially oh, sure. to tell anybody who knows shelving would be like you are con- contracted to make a record you and made then, a piece uh, of brilliance yeah you made a piece of just brilliance sits on the shelf yeah. it, and then it's, it literally sits on the shelf and doesn't get released because the record label isn't uh, necessarily contractually obligated to do so I, I was super worried because like uh, yeah over the so over the course of it <clears throat> my editor who I love um, we were working together she's kind of like my A&R person and we worked together and then right when we were finishing up She's like, I have some news. I got a big offer at another company, and I'm going to take it. And uh, I, you know, and I I worked in publishing before, so I totally understood. I get how it goes. I was heartbroken, but then while she was away, like I think the company she went to accompanied the qu- the company that I was at, and so <laughs> she called me like six months later like a month ago. And she's like, great news. I was like, what? She's like, I'm your editor again. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy. So, um, yeah, it all worked out. That was like such a, a stroke of good fortune for me. Wow. That is funny how that works. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, so the role of an editor that works with you, I'm trying to draw a couple parallels between music and releasing a book. Cause I find it so, uh, fascinating. And it puts a, like, it's such a good framework for it to talk about. I think. So does an editor kind of work as a producer in a sense? Where you're kind of bringing in, you are, well, you're familiar with the equipment, so you don't have to have somebody pushing <laughs> buttons and, or someone teach you how to write with a pen. Yeah, they're kind of like A&R person slash producer, you know, because they are not only working with you on the text of the book, yeah. but they're kind of your advocate in the office. You know, they go to business meetings and they're like, okay, today we're going to talk about our spring books. Here's what we got on the docket. Yeah. So, you know, the editor's got to stand up and be your advocate and be like, you know, we got this one book about bands going to major labels, and here's why you got to sell a million copies to your Barnes and Noble reps. Um, so yeah, they're really like you know you want a, a person who really advocates for you in your corner. Sure. And it was such a bummer because in the interim, when she left, I kind of just got orphaned by another editor who was very nice. No disrespect to him, but like I wasn't his baby. You know what I mean? I just got kind of dumped on him, oh, so I didn't expect to have like some kind of you know, his full attention. Yeah. Um, so I'm super glad that I, I have my editor once again. Yeah, that's uh, definitely good to have somebody that you can work with through all those changes. Us in a similar way, we have uh, have had the same booking agent for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We were one of the first bands that he had signed when he became a booking agent. And I think he's changed companies like four times since then. And every time we're just kind of, you know, look at it as, of course, we're going to follow him because we could just exactly have somebody that is working for you or you're working for that doesn't have the same passion or interest or is invested the yeah. same way. And you're just kind of like, I, oh. I learned in the process of writing the book that that became such common practice that a lot of bands would get something in their contract written called the key man clause, okay. which essentially says like, Hey, we're signing because we really love this guy. Yeah. And if they leave, we leave. 
Wow. Um, I've not heard that before. Yeah, key man clause. Wow. Mm-hmm. I back that. So if you're if you're signing a big contract, as I imagine many of your listeners will be, <laughs> make sure you get that key key man clause written in. Hell yeah. The, uh, so I wanted to bring it back to what led you to become a writer. So I know you started reading at a really early age. Mm-hmm. Mom was a teacher. Yep. Uh, my mom was a teacher as well and yeah. got us to be reading really early, which I thought was, uh, you know, realizing now is such a great advantage to have when we were going to the school system and shit. is fucking badass. Um, but when did you decide that you were going to write? Um, so I, I think, like, I, it was something that I wanted to do because I was good at language, much better than I was at math or science. But yeah. um, I don't... At some time, at some point, between like just wanting to be a writer and thinking about what a career I could have is, I think I internalized that like I couldn't do it. I think I internalized that it was like impossible, you know, or like, and especially too, I really got knocked down a peg when I graduated from college because that was when like newspapers were cutting their print. Sections. Sure. They were cutting staff. They were magazines were going on online only. It was just a bad time for print, and so I kind of got scared. You know, yeah. like it was really hard to find a job. I mean, I'm sure it is now too. But like graduating college, I was there were more jobs being cut than new ones starting. So I, th- I think I was just like, well, if I can work in some capacity with the written word. I will count that as a success, but I really abandoned the idea of like, I can be the guy doing the writing, Okay, you know, and, and it's shitty to admit that, but I, I feel like I had to unlearn that over several years of working just in an office job Yeah, and one day just being like, why not? Why can't you do it? Tony, I wonder if, uh, did coming up, going to so many DIY shows and being involved with that scene inform that a little bit? Like kind of teach you that you can, you would be able to do it. I wish I could say yes, but I think, (laughs) I think I almost looked at it as like when I graduated from college, almost as like, that's what I did as a kid. That Ah, was a really nice fantasy that I had when I was a kid thinking I could be a writer. Yeah. That's very cute. (laughs) And anyways, now I have a W nines to fill out and (laughs) I better get a fucking job with health insurance. But yeah, I think I, I kind of like abandoned that way of thinking. Not that I was like mad about it or anything like I'd been betrayed, but I just think that like the stuff that I had grown up with, I was like, is this, is this practical, helpfully, helpfully practical in my life now? And maybe I like internalize that mentality that you can do things yourself, but I do really feel like I just like kind of gave up that way of thinking (laughs) when you start to like really need to pay rent. You know? Of course, yeah. I mean, like paying bills makes you go into such a protective mode where you just give up on dream. You're, you're like willing to just sell out. Yeah. <laughs> you're willing to just yeah. give up things and, you know, because otherwise you need to pay rent every month. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've thought about it many times of some of my friends who are in a position similar, writers or photographers, other artists that are working uh, ostensibly on their own. Because we moved together to Philly into the same house. There was like six of us there. So when it came to bills, there was a lot more resources. Like we sold equipment when we had to pay bills or like somebody could help find a job or whatever. But when it came to choosing, also when it came to choosing between getting a job that you had a healthcare attached to or whatever, it was like, well, I'm not the only one making this decision. So it was kind of easier to just be in that group. And I always like, uh, 
have a lot of respect for people like yourself that could just take the jump into doing it one person and be like, well, I'm the only one who's going to rely on. If I don't wake up today and do this, then the nobody other, I mean, else the, other, <laughs> the other side of that, too, is that, like, you nobody is bound to your failure. Sure. You know, I feel like I've taken a, ro- a lot of risks over the years because I'm like, I don't have kids or like, yeah. nobody's depending on me. You know, if I fail... I don't know. I could, I don't know, move back home or whatever I had to do, you know, or like take some shitty job, but like, nope, that wouldn't affect anybody else. Sure. So I do think I, I'm quite selfish in a lot of ways, not that I always think that that's necessarily a bad word. Um, but yeah. And in a way I almost, well, this is really unpacking a lot of my psyche, but in a way (laughs) I think that makes me like averse to, deep connections because I'm like no nobody can attach themselves to this like rocket ship that's just going into the earth like no people are gonna get hurt like yeah I'm a loner Tom a rebel (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I just like in a way I'm like I feel like I have a very weird life and I feel like I tell people that all the time when they're like why don't you date more I'm like who's fucking who's gonna date me and they're like what do you mean I'm like I don't have a job I also think it kind of, though, at the same time, we talk about blasting, steamrolling. My, my good friend Roger Harvey puts it, steamrolling through the universe, waiting for people to hand you things or whatever. But the uh, idea of having that rocket ship and blasting kind of through and being averse to deep connections, it kind of feel at the same time it makes it so that the connections that you have become deep more quickly. You're kind of spending less time on the other bullshit that gets in the way or the fog that kind of clears between two people like you don't seem to be the type of people at least when we're touring you don't really talk about the weather much you kind of just jump into whatever it is that you want mm. to say or or have because it kind of clears it up yeah i'm blunt because i'm too stupid to <laughs> <laughs> put intricacies into my conversations i guess oh, yeah, yeah. I, so I got wanted to ask you about the process of, of oh my process Your, yes process. thank you so much I'm for asking, asking <laughs> about my process so I picture uh, the so when we're breaking a record for example just to, to use that vehicle again um, there are hard drives full of demos there are notebooks full of things that are written there are hard drives that get lost so you buy a new hard drive and then you find the old hard drive there's just a mess of everything everywhere how are you able to maintain a type of organization to carry a narrative as big as an 11 chapter book like this a four was it 400 pages long yeah um how how am i able to yeah so the question how do you do you build like a template for each chapter or do you have like an umbrella or a couple sentences that kind of just dictate what's going to be in what's not going to be in i mean like starting literally from the ground level the fr- I remember when, when I helped Laura Jane write her book, um, she had a lot of stuff, like fragments and boxes and stuff. But the first thing that I literally did for her was just start 12 Google Docs. And I'm okay. like, these are the chapters. These will be the chapters. <laughs> like, it sounds yeah. so rudimentary, but like... That's literally the first thing that I can remember doing. I, I'm so glad um, you said that because I literally just can't think and <laughs> fathom of how you, someone would do something like it that. It seems, like, you know what, man? Like the thing that I learned from writing books about not just the process of writing books, but about like, this is so corny, but about life <laughs> is that uh, I, I think people, people tell me that all the time where they're like, oh, wow, you must be really smart. Like I could never write a book. 
And I'm like, I am, if you knew how stupid I was, <laughs> and it's just that like, I think people look at a book, they look at the finished result and they look at my book and it's 450 pages. And yeah, it looks really daunting when you're looking at it like that. But the thing is like, when you wake up every day, you don't think of like, how am I making a 450 page book? You will go completely insane with that. <clears throat> you have to just wake up every day and be like, what is, the, what is the little chip away that I have to do today? And then you do that, and then the next day you say, what is the little thing I have to do today? And then you just keep doing that. Uh. And after two years, you have amassed something like a book. And I, I really think that, that breaking that very simple thought down helped me so much with uh, uh, book writing and life. Because like, you know, there's a there's saying like, how you spend your day is how you spend your life. Yes. And so that, that helped big time. And you just have to have faith in yourself every, cause every day you're writing and you're like just writing your one page and, but you do start to think of like, is this, <clears throat> is this what the book, is this going to make the book good? And you just have to have faith in yourself that you've gotten to this level cause you know what you're doing and you trust that I'm making the right decision today and then tomorrow, my instincts will help me make the right decision tomorrow. Yeah. And then add all of that up, like doing the right thing for 365 days, you will have made the right book. You yeah. know, and so it really, because I, I do tend to freak out when I think of the enormity of a project, like an album. It's just like, yeah, you can probably look back at it now, an album that you've made and been like, yeah, no, I'm looking at the whole product. But yeah. at the day to day, you're just like, what base tracks do we need to do today like it's just exactly. it just breaks down into little bits so like i guess if i'm giving out advice is just like stop thinking about the entire project think about what you need to do in just that day <clears throat> and a book like there were moments where i would like start to go insane like that you just think of the totality of it yeah and it's so overwhelming so you, all you can do is just the one day ahead of you. you yeah, know? it's so interesting, and I'm so glad to say that that one day ahead that worked for us as we were developing. We had to do you just had to practice your guitar because every you're not going to be able to play certain things as you started, but you know if you practice and, every day you'd get there. And some of the things like practicing is so unsexy. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's just like it's annoying. It's like I mean, uh, like I'm I'm really proud of the book overall. And I hope that people like I would not want people to know about like the legal edits that it went through oh, and changing like having arguments about like the font layout, you know, yeah, like just yeah. like even little nuts and bolts, things like that. Um, I just want people to look at it as like the finished result. And there may be even things in it that are like people psycho uh, somatically like absorb, you know, that like. Yes, I intended, I don't know, I'm getting up my own ass here, but <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is like you make hundreds, maybe thousands of like little, little decisions and you just like trusting that it all added up right, yeah. you know? Totally. It's uh, at least for us and for myself, so much of the negative parts of doing a project, whether it's a song or, a, you know, anything, th this interview is suffering in the abstract I mentioned before worrying about what the entire thing is going to be before even starting it so doing those like hacking away day by day like you said it kind of makes the most sense and works works the best yeah that's wild uh so just a side note this is coming out of harper collins right 
Yes, which again, it was not my original publisher. <laughs> there was a HarperCollins factory in Scranton. Oh, yeah? And they would, uh, twice a year, in the spring and in the fall, if you knew somebody that worked there, like like our neighbor worked there, bring us, and any books that had like the cover torn off mm-hmm. or had like a little misprint in them, you got to get for 25 cents for a paperback and a dollar for a hardcover. So my entire... Uh, my my siblings' entire first like library or house was just all interesting misprinted HarperCollins books. They there's a really there's a lot of really interesting uh, um, phrases in publishing that I love so much. One of my favorite ones is, do you know what it's called when they take the hardcovers that don't like you know like okay we ship ten thousand hardcovers and we only sold eight thousand so now we have two thousand and we're gonna turn they basically are just take the covers off and turn them into paperbacks and it's called. <laughs> It's called strip and bind, nice. which is sounds like some real like S and M shit. I yeah, love that it so sounds much. German strip as fuck and bind. too. That yeah, sounds like yeah. its own word in German. Or just but you know strip and bind. You know what I remembered recently is that 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 time when I got out of college and I didn't have a job and I was trying so desperately to find one. One of the things I would do is like hit up friends that I knew that did have jobs and be yeah. like, "Are you hiring? Can you get me an interview?" And I remember I was had this friend who worked at Harper Collins and I was like really trying to get like a foot in there and get interviewed. And I just didn't get the job. And like 15 years later, they're publishing my book. It's just so f- crazy. And damn, as our, as our friend Anika would say, life is a funny ha ha. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I find that phrase entering my mind quite, quite. Yeah. Frequently from, I don't know other, yeah. any other way to describe that other than like, what a weird. Yeah. Totally. And it's a not, it seems to be a really tough industry. My, uh, so my fiance just finished over the pandemic, her master's in creative writing. So mm-hmm. we met cause she was a music journalist in Philly and she's worked in various, you know, journalistic and writing roles and editorial roles and all of her friends are journalists. And we obviously have like a group chat. So I see, you know, that side of things and I always have like a, a soft spot for journalists, not because of just, you know, covering us and having like that kind of relationship, but also, reading so many nonfiction books and then like seeing them, what happens when the papers close and one of them works for the paper in Philly and seeing like Condé Nast buy up the papers in Northeastern Pennsylvania and turning them into one thing. But uh, I did notice that they all give each other, you know, everybody's like constantly, I'm leaving this job. Do you want to come and interview for it? That Mm -hmm. kind of, but when they talk about publishing, everybody's like, yeah, I can't do that now because apparently you would have to start very low salary and really low on the totem pole. And it's all like younger kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I started when I got out of college, and I, I, I had a really funny like entree into publishing because I didn't just get hired. Like I was applying for like Monster dot com, you know, like putting my resume <laughs> in. I didn't just get hired. I uh, got I must I must have like signed up for like a Monster dot com or something like that, and some temp agency found me, and they were like, "Do you want to come in and just take?" You know, basically you go in and you just, they see how fast you can type and what skills you have and whatever. Um, But so then they called me and they were like, you know, do you want to take a a job at this publisher, Oxford University Press? And I was like, okay. And what it was, was that um, the director was on maternity leave and this guy, Purdy, who I love, uh, he, um, he was filling in as like the director. And I worked with him, really got along with him, his assistant was not very good. Mm-hmm. And then the woman just never came back from maternity leave. So he got the job. And like well, one of the first things he did was like hire me. Um, and he like let his assistant go, which I feel bad about, but she was really, really <laughs> bad. But everybody else in the team was really cool. And, but yeah, you start at such a, I think my first, 
I think that job, I was 21, and I made 27.5 in New York, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's a shitty salary. And, uh, and the only way that I learned to, like, move up in publishing, too, is, like, you have to bump around. Like, I, when, when I was there, this other guy at Russell, uh, Russell at um, Random House, like, just hit me up. Like, would you want to come here? Yeah. And I was like, okay. And then somebody hit me up from another company. Like, would you want to come here? And so, like, you just have to bounce around to move up at all. So I, I can't imagine now just being like in my thirties and like, I'm going to start in book publishing. I commend that. Cause it's must be so hard to just start. Yeah. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. It's going to be, you know, mind blowing. You'd have to really, really want it and, or have like be independently wealthy maybe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which you, I wonder, does it attract a lot of people like that? So do you get a lot of people that come into publishing that are from, that have a trust fund or that are like, can do that? You know yeah. I mean? You know what? And you know how I found so that I out? That, Cause it seems like that happens a lot in journalism as well. Yes. And you know how I found out when I was at, uh, my, like my first jobs in publishing was like, I knew me and all the assistants were making the same shit money between 27 (laughs) and 35. Right. And, and and New York. Yeah. It's so expensive. Mm -hmm. And me, I'm like a person who still to this day, I don't spend money. I didn't buy myself stuff. I bought myself. My only purchase in that entire era was a Nintendo Wii. (laughs) And so that's all I had. And, but so I would, try to like commiserate with my fellow assistants and be like, yeah, we make such shit money. This sucks. But then we'd go out to a bar. I don't drink. So I was having like, no, I had no tab and then I would just take the train home and they would run up like a $60 drink tab. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to take a taxi home. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I'm not like you guys. No. <laughs> like we're all assistants, but you guys are getting money from yeah. your parents and I'm not. So, totally. um, but I learned to survive like that, like a little cockroach, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I still to this day, like am so frugal with my money. Like this camera. Yeah. I, this was at a time where I was at vice and I was like making a salary Yeah, and I had to like, like basically have somebody else press the purchase button because I couldn't. Oh, no shit. I am okay. so averse to spending money. Yeah. My cousin has this great story about when he had to, when he asked his girlfriend to marry him, he had to get drunk to buy the engagement ring because he just couldn't <laughs> part with the money. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess that runs in my family, but I'm just like so cheap. And I think that's why, because I just know what it's like to live on the lowest possible salary. Sure. Yeah. I always find myself ended up being like penny wise and pound stupid because we'd spend so much time being broke that I'll like nickel and dime certain things and then spend way too much money on other things. Like, oh, a guitar for $3,000. Yeah. I could buy that. But then but you're uh, like, ooh, potato chips are on sale. Yeah, I'm going to get the unhealthier food because <laughs> yeah, it's 20 right, cents right. less than the, than the other one. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Um, so I wanted to ask you one more question about uh, publishing and stuff, and then I have a couple questions about the, the book, which is, you know, again, fantastic. So it, it, is there a tract in publishing that's similar to some of the DIY tracks that you have in music as far as it goes releasing albums? Like, can I contact a bookmaker 
and then uh, you know have them print out a book to my specs and then just pay for it and distribute it myself is that like is there anybody who does that it just seems like it's so ingrained into yeah the bestseller list and like having totally. the distribution well of yeah books. i mean if you want to try to like be a bestseller or whatever don't don't do, it has to go through the traditional right yeah. but for me like even before sellout came out i did a couple of zines and you know they don't have barcodes or anything and i'm lucky that i have enough of a an audience that I can sell directly to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you can do that. The company that I use was this company called Mixum. They do really good binding and printing. You can do that. But yeah, do not expect to be like on the bestseller list or anything yeah. like that. And it's so funny the effect that that had because I was doing these zines just by myself, shipping them out, print it, having them printed myself, mailing them out personally. And now I put out this big book where there's like thousands and thousands of copies out in the world. You can go on Amazon and buy it. You can go to any bookstore and buy it. And people will email me and be like, hey, man, uh, my copy was the uh, corner was dented. Are you sending these out? <laughs> like, do you really think I'm sending out the Amazon copies? Yeah. So in a way, like it, it I kind of painted myself into a corner being this like DIY printing guy because now people are like, hey, man, where do I get it in uh, Saginaw? I'm like, man, I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, I, don't, uh, I have like a whole team that does this for mm -hmm. me. So, uh yeah. <laughs> That's it's, so funny. We have a direct parallel of that. Like when we decided there was no more of us doing our own merch was when we got overwhelmed with the emails of people being like, Hey, can I switch this size or you, hitting us up on our personal socials being like, Hey, this was missing X or whatever. And I was just, we were, got to the point where we're like, we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to sound we're not like, customer service I don't want to sound un ungrateful at all, you know, but the, the conversations that I've had with my publish my publisher, uh, like I'll have a conversation right in a row where I'll talk to them and they'll be like, you know, Dan, you, you might get on the white show or you might get on, you know, T NPR or like whatever, you might be best at whatever, yeah. <clears throat> all these crazy things that seem so surreal. And I'm like, wow, that was a cool call. And then I'm like, let me open my email. And it's like, yeah, I didn't get my t-shirt. <laughs> oh my God. Damn it. I can't, yeah. I can't do this anymore. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Rosenstock's wife, Christine, who uh, does a lot of their like merch and orders and yeah. stuff. She like shamed me for not handling my own t-shirt merch. <laughs> she was like, it's so easy. You can do it. Just print the labels out. And I'm like, do you not understand? Like, I don't want to have to worry about going to the post office. Yeah. I don't want like, I will pay a little bit more this time around for somebody else. I'm like doing a book tour. Let somebody else do this yeah. for me. So at some point, like it is very cool to do like the DIY thing, but at some point, like you're like, you know, I'm never going to grow yeah. unless I hand this well, off to somebody you're else. You're spending more time shipping things than you're writing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like such so a, it it's us. such a process that like I did that last zine and that was a lot of fun and it took me a full week to pack the orders. And that was an entire week that I could have been making another exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then you got to like get back into the mentality. And then so, if you do to somebody who all they do is pack and print things, they're going to be way better at it than you are. They so can handle the returns. Yeah. Can, you know, like it's, they know all the it's tricks. Great. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in, in the book, which I, you know, it said I didn't finish, so I'm just going to take a giant mm -hmm. leap here, but I imagine that this exists in every chapter. There's like a huge fundamental conflict, uh, about, for most of signing to a major label or it seems to be a situation where it is uh, you know people are scared to do it because you're releasing your art you're caring to someone else and a lot of times in the cases of Green Day and Jawbreaker it was like a moral decision more than anything else and that seems to be internalized with the bands but also it seemed that journalists played in a, a huge role in creating that kind of atmosphere 
Yeah, for sure. The the, uh, the MRR, um, the Maximum Rock and Roll <laughs> writers in particular, the one line that I think about all the time is um, in the Against Me chapter, this guy Bill Florio, who he, he would write an MRR that, you know, we need to form punk rock terrorism squads. Like, if you're if a band does something you don't agree with, you know, like pour bleach on their merch and all this yeah. like crazy shit. But he said this one quote to me that's in the book that I thought about a lot where he was like, to me, there were zine people and there were band people and those people are against each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what a way to think of it, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was like really antagonistic. And yeah. they were calling people and like I think some a little bit of push pull on that is good because I love Jawbreaker love him love him love him but I think to look at them as some sort of like innocent uh, bystanders in this like sellout thing is a little naive because Blake would get on stage of course every night yeah. and be like hey we're never signing to a major label we're indie fuck majors and everybody would cheer and then when they signed, guess what happened? You know, they got blowback. And the yeah. same thing with Against Me, too. Like, love Against Me to death. Love one of my all-time favorite bands. But they made a documentary about how silly it would be to think about going to a major label. Yeah. And then six months later, they did. So, you know, they're not... Those bands are not totally innocent in a lot of ways. Of course, yeah. uh, they you know so when that's one part that I love about the book actually as well is that it's uh, it, it's an overhead view of these things instead of being like uh, a member of either of the tribes. Like you don't seem to. You, I mean, obviously you're not jumping behind that that MMR guy or uh, even like you know uh, idolizing or over romanticizing the band situation. You get to look at it and be like, yeah, this is what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to like I like I I tried to. Ride the line of looking back, and be like, "Wow, this is a really heated era," and maybe we can all maybe we can look back at it and like chill a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, too, I just didn't want to let bands off the hook. And to be honest, I think Laura, after we we interviewed for a long time in Chicago, and afterwards, I think she was like, "I'm really tired of answering those fucking questions," <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just just being hanged on the cross for things she did like 15 years ago. Sure. Um, and I get that. I totally get it. And she obviously has done so much important stuff since then that it, it like overshadows what happened in that like Sire Records era. Yeah. But um, but at the same time, she did say that shit. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, so it's just interesting to 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 look at it in, in through that context a little bit. And on the other side of it too, you know, like I interviewed Mark Hoppus, and uh, Blink never did that. Like yeah. They were like, we want to be a huge band. They never said, like, we're going to stay DIY forever. They wanted to be huge. They wanted to be on the radio. And so when they went to a major label, I think people got mad at them for doing that. But it wasn't like they could say, like, you said you'd never do it. You said, you know, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. They weren't hypocrites. They were just ambitious. Totally. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I found the Against Me chapter the most, like, personally relevant and most interesting because that was what we had lived through. So I graduated high school in 2005 and we drove down to see Against Me in Stroudsburg before the um, Eternal Cowboy tour. Mm -hmm. It was just like in a basement of a punk rock clothing store. And we, then that d documentary came out and we watched it like every weekend. We would just get drunk and watch it and be like, hey, we can do this too. We can make a band that's like this. And then all the things they did, like adding the dollar signs into the guy's eyes yeah, yeah, at the yeah, one yeah, point and knowing that they were kind of the whole time like... Uh, uh, considering or were already going to make the move to the majors. That was super interesting that that was happening. 
And uh, on top of that, though, we did right before you know you got here today. We were kind of going around asking if we remember talking shit on against me online. And our tour manager Scotty Bell, of course, was like, "Oh yeah, that was my name, Scotty Bell." On um, you know either Absolute Punk or or uh, PunkNews.org, just talking shit. And I remember it being such a a a, a viscerally emotional conversation to have at parties for so long. And looking back on it now, I'm just like, I don't. You know, I don't get what it was, uh, even though they did say, you know, the reinventing Alex Rose itself is kind of an anthem or, you know, it, it for me, it was a takedown of everything that would eventually become. The thing that I've been saying a lot is that, um, you know, I think that we can look back at this time and people like to look back at it with a little sense of like... Um, righteousness to be like, you know, bands shouldn't go to, at the time we were saying like, bands shouldn't go to major labels because uh, they're connected to ExxonMobil and it's yeah. a corporation and you're selling your art to this co- these evil companies that are doing bad in the world. And it's great to like fly your punk flag and say that. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to this. When a band that you like and you see at a little 200 cap club, when they get bigger, they play places that are a thousand cap, and suddenly the price is not eight dollars anymore. Yeah. It's twenty five dollars, and maybe you couldn't get tickets in time, and maybe their t shirts are too expensive, and they're just less accessible. And so I think that uh, everybody loves to fly that punk flag flag of righteousness and why it's bad to go to work with a corporation. But I think when it comes down to it, people are personally betrayed. Yeah, I, you know, like yeah, 100%. They, they, you feel like you've lost access. To a uh, to your favorite band, I I, I wasn't. And you were as, special and identified yourself as someone who was special because you were part of a smaller exactly. Club, and so. as a kid, you don't think about like, oh yeah, but they have rent to pay. You don't think <laughs> about that as a kid. You're just angry. <laughs> one of the one of the there's a story in the book about um, Jimmy World um, played a show in Allentown, Pennsylvania, right after Bleed American blew up, and I went to that show with my girlfriend at the time, and. Um, I remember being so frustrated because I loved Clarity. Clarity was like a cult classic among uh-huh. the punk emo kids, right? Emo core, as it was called. Yeah. And we were just so into that record. It was just like this little special thing. And then Bleed American came out. The middle was on the radio. And we went to see them in Allentown. And it was a fairgrounds. It was like... Um, I don't know, probably 2,000 people, 2,500 so people. I'm pretty sure that both Joe and Eric were there. That's no like, kidding. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I, the thing that I remember being so irritated about was like me and my my girlfriend were right up up at the front on the side. And, um, you know, like they were playing songs from Clarity. And we're like, oh, my God, like this is crazy. And everybody just sat there all silent. <laughs> and then they played the middle and everybody jumped up and down and did their little mosh crowd surf moves and yeah. all this stuff. And we just felt like this sucks because these people are just going to move on to the next thing soon. They're just kind of like front runners and bandwagoners, whatever you want to call these people. And again, I was like 19 at the time. So it was just something that bothered me. Probably now I'd be like, yeah, what do you expect? Yeah. But at the time it was just like this. I feel like this thing that was really special is getting it belongs to the world now. Exactly. And you feel like you lose it loses its specialness. Again, I never thought that Jim Adkins had fucking bills to pay back home. <laughs> I only knew that I had to pay $30 yeah. to go see them among 3,000 annoying jock guys who heard them on the radio. Yeah. You know? And so, totally. like, that that was a real feeling. And, and that's what I tried to capture in the book, this just, like, kind of sense of betrayal, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
That's yes. funny that they were at that show, though. Yeah, it is really funny because I remember Eric talking about being he's like, yeah, I remember seeing Jimmy World when I was X years old at the Allentown Fair. The reason that it comes up in the book is because um, uh, the openers were Juliana Theory. And I remember wow. Brett Detar having a fucking hands-free headset, and he just looked like a, just a tool, like a <laughs> televangelist, you yeah. know? But anyways, um, and then uh, the other opener was supposed to be Coed and Cambria. Oh, no shit. And they had to drop off the last minute, and the promoter was like, I know this little band that played like 12 shows. Yeah. called My Chemical Romance. Wow. And they opened that show, and that's in, that's like a very seminal moment in the My Chemical Romance chapter in the book. Wow. Yeah. I don't remember them at all. I only remember Brett Detar's fucking <laughs> microphone. Yeah, that would stick out. <laughs> that was a band that came through Wilkes-Barre a lot, which is uh, just like a town south of Scranton that had a couple of different DIY venues and places that we could go see shows at. Yeah. Huge hardcore scene. It's uh, a yeah. uh, dangerous, you know, great place. That's where the title fight came out of there and stuff. Interesting. But I remember them coming through there all of the time. So I can't help but notice, and this might be getting way too out in the weeds, but uh, so the time period that it takes place in 1994 to 2007, 2008, is a time with like a, well, at least for a little bit of it, there's like a big budget surplus. If like zooming out to like a macroeconomic standpoint, it, things were not... I feel like it was less understandable for people to sign to majors, and I noticed that the thing ends in um, during the Great Recession. So I wonder, do you think that that kind of different approach to people viewing themselves economically and their standing in the world changed the way that people think of selling out after that? Because it seems like people talked a lot less shit on the internet about bands selling out. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel like now it's just like we're all kind of like, when you like a band... You're like, good for them because yeah. I'm not paying for their like, you know, in, in I think back in the day, it was almost like a stock. You're like, I bought Jimmy World's Clarity. Sure. So I own $13 worth of Jimmy World's stock. Yeah. And they just signed to a major. I was where was the board meeting? I wasn't called for this. Yeah, but yeah. now it's kind of like there are albums that I now that I think about it that I love. And I'm like, well, I have listened to a million times on Spotify. But then I think now I'm thinking about it like, have I given them any money? Have I given them? Money, like I've probably listened to their album a hundred times. Have I stopped to give them some profit? Yeah. And then I'm like, shit, I haven't. I feel really guilty about that. So when I see a, that band be like, yeah, we just got a song on fucking Parks and Rec or Shit's Creek or something like that, yeah. I'm like, great. I'm glad you did because I didn't give you yeah. my money. You know, <laughs> like I feel, I feel guilty. And so you don't feel like a stockholder anymore. You're just yeah. like, let's get this band paid. You know? No, totally. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's, like, at the time, you used to just be like, is my money not enough? Yeah. <laughs> you have to go be in a commercial now? Yeah, like, <laughs> you have to be in a, the Volkswagen Beetle commercial. Totally. You have to do a Carnival Cruise Line ad? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> of all the things. We've only had to turn down a couple of syncs before, as in, like, things that they wanted to use our song for, and we were yeah. like, no. But most of the time, someone, they're like, can we use your song for this? We were like, Yes. Absolutely. You'll pay I, us more for this than we've ever been paid for right, streaming. Totally. Sure. I talked to the, the, you know, the Donnas have a chapter in the book and mm-hmm. they, this is no, no disrespect to the Donnas, uh, but they were the queens of like, they were like, yeah, any movie, like video game. Yeah. Like they were in video games, movies, commercials, e- like everywhere. They, the drummer uh, was in a Target commercial. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, but... I, I kind of just asked like them, in the commercial. Just yeah, it was her and what's that guy's name? Bun E. Carlos from 
of fucking cheap trick or whatever, having like a drum off. Wow. Um, okay. In the Target commercial, like it's you know? crazy. Yeah, um, but anyways, uh, I kind of tactfully asked them like, "Is there anything that you wouldn't <laughs> at the time?" And um, and she was like, "Yeah, actually, you know, we used to get a lot of requests to use our songs in like Tampax commercials oh. or like." you know, like birth control pills. Sure. Just like hyper. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, and not that she's like, I love birth control. I love it. But like, why did we have to do that? Just cause we were a female band. Like, yeah. why can't we do Budweiser? And then we did, we did Budweiser. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they just like so liberally licensed their music, but it was just funny to hear that they were like, actually, no, we don't want to get typecast as like, a f- you know, f- Oh, cause we're a female band. Yeah. Just to hock, sh- like tampons and boxed stuff like right that. into yeah, it. Yeah. Totally. So here's a two two part question for you. One, it, how funny is it to be on the end of uh, having to do a circuit, like doing this press circuit? You are it's like putting on a record. We have to do a million interviews. You end up saying the same things over and over again. I feel like you have probably experienced that when you're covering new releases and stuff from other artists on that end. And the second part of that is, who did you have to leave out of the book? So I feel like you've been asked that question who, so okay. many times. Well, first off, it definitely made me appreciate. Like, because when I when I talk to somebody, you know, usually I like if I'm really writing a profile on somebody, I'll mm-hmm. try to get like a day of their time that I can just hang out with them. Maybe I'm just in the background, or maybe we just have like a real deep two hour convo. Sure. But now I'm probably now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, no, I was probably like interviewer number six. For the, you know, like I'm just <laughs> yeah. trying to get off my high horse a little bit to just be like, yeah, I'm not anybody. Yeah. You know, I really try to be like, oh, no, this is this is going to be the best interview of their life. <laughs> but I'm sure everybody probably thinks that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I've been doing the same answers. And sure. this one kid the other day, we, I was doing this podcast and he, he was asking me the same, you know, questions about like selling out that I've been answering and answering and answering. And then he was like, yeah, let me ask you something now. Uh, Changing gears. If you had to rank the jackass sketches, which one would you do? (laughs) I'm like, oh, yes. (laughs) I love this. Yes. Okay. First of all, when Ryan Dunn got his nuts stuck to the ice block, that's number one. Number two, (laughs) just like anything. um, But uh, so, yeah, so I definitely have a new appreciation. And also, too, I've been thinking a lot about – being good at interviews because it's definitely a skill set and I always think about how to make a conversation flow how to come up with good questions how to get to topics but I never really thought of like being good being a good subject Mm -hmm. and then I started thinking like yeah there are some people who are just really good at being interviewed oh yeah and um and so I actually tweeted the other day like who do you think is good at being interviewed and a lot of people were saying John Carpenter and uh, Quincy Jones. Uh, there's that Kathleen Turner one that I love so much where she was asked, like, what fuels your your career? And she was just like, rage. Yeah. And they were like, well, like, rage about what? She's just like, I'm fucking angry. Yeah. And they were like, angry about what? And she's like, everything. <laughs> so she's, she's, but I was just like, man, that's such a good... Uh, cause I tend to just ramble until we're like, you're done. You know, you said enough stupid things and I'm like, great. <clears throat> but I'm like really thinking about like pe- now about people being like good subjects. And then what was the second part of that? Question? Uh, it was just this, the question I've heard you asked a million times is like, how, how did you choose who was going to make the book and didn't like what, uh, oh, was it, was oh, it heartbreaking oh. to leave anybody out of the book? Yeah, there were some, um, I think everybody earned their place, but, uh, 
Um, I really think I'm going to write this one day and put it somewhere, but I really want to see what the deal was behind Caven's RCA record antenna. So I'm not super familiar with Caven. So. Oh, you're not familiar? Oh, no, not super familiar. Okay, so Caven has basically reinvented themselves like four different times. Okay. They, they were essentially like proto-medical, metalcore, like really laid the ground for... For what became extremely popular on like yeah, Warped Tour. Yeah, but, like, but they were the first, and they were much, like, Until Your Heart Stops is the record. It's like okay. this gnarling hardcore record with these, like, like these, like, metal riffs in it. It's, it's amazing. And then they got a, a fan base with the Boston hardcore scene for that. Yeah. And then they once they had gained a fan base, they were like, oh, we're going to make a record called Jupiter, which is basically like a space rock record, which yeah. I think you could, I bet if you asked Title Fight, Hey, what what record inspired your like spacey rocky sound? Yeah, but they would say that. I bet Law Dispute would say it. You know, like it was just very seminal um, in that weird. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I, space rock is the best way I can yeah, put it. Yeah, I like that. And then they got at, at, after that they got an offer to go to a major label, and they made this record called Antenna. And Antenna is like a radio rock record. Like you could tell they really tried to make a single and it's just very middle of the road. It didn't work out with RCA. And then they went back to making hardcore records. <laughs> they made like these really sick hardcore records that kind of like went so under the radar. Did they end up with like two different fan bases? It, it, absolutely. Wow. Like, yeah. They had like people who were like really into Jupiter. They had people who were really into until your heart stops. I drove to, uh, the the um, the first Unitarian Church one time, because during their like <clears throat> Jupiter era, or they stopped playing like the hardcore stuff. Yeah, they couldn't. They physically couldn't anymore. And um, I drove all the way down there because they advertised it as like we're gonna play until your heart stops uh, material. <laughs> I drove to an hour and a half to Philly, waited through their whole set list. And then they're like, all right, guys, you ready for this? And they played two of those songs, and that was it. <laughs> and I was like, god damn, you got me. Um, uh, when was that? 2004. Wow. Yes, yeah. Um, but such an, they've, I, I, like, at the time, that was frustrating. But now I am very interested in bands who are just willing to completely alienate their fan. There's this book called, um, the genius, the advanced genius theory. Okay. And it's, uh, kind of lays out a a bunch of criterion that the author thinks that, uh, are befitting of every artistic genius. And one of them is like, at some point in your career, at at least one point in your career, you basically have to alienate your entire fan base. (laughs) And so when somebody does that, I'm like, respect. Oh yeah. That's like (laughs) totally, that's, you know, not only just you talking about paying the bills or having a career or anything. That's just deeply personal to alienate everybody that's constantly giving you attention. And yeah, like for sure, they could have just been kept putting out hardcore records and could have had a little fan base going. They could have been like Converge. Like sure, they were really tight with Converge. Yeah, but they were like, no. no do, <laughs> what do if we did we an eight-minute like winding song where the vocals sound like <laughs> like for, like through this modifier for like ten minutes? Amazing. I'm definitely gonna have to uh, check them out. I love that. If nothing else, I made a cave in fan out of it, you or at least yeah. I piqued your interest. You have absolutely, piqued, and I get hyper focused, so I'll probably yeah, end up yeah, listening yeah. to it all, for, all consistently over the next couple of days. So uh, now that you've you've wrote the book and you released it, it's out there in the world. Uh, I'm sure you're getting all kinds of feedback. You're gonna find out about the bestseller list soon. Uh, in fact, that'll probably happen before this comes out. Super stoked yeah. for you. Um, have as far as a big project goes. Now that you've been able to get this one together. It's just a second book, correct? 
Second, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so where do you think you're going to go forward? Are you going to try to, <laughs> not necessarily write another book, but, I mean, there's probably so many different, like, long-form journalistic opportunities that should come forward from uh, it. You would think. I, it, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> I Two things about that. Number one, I remember when Laura and I did that book, her, her memoir five years ago. It was awesome because she had to do all the interviews. Like, I was like, <laughs> nobody wanted to talk to me. I would just eat the green room snacks. Yeah. But I remember she did Seth Meyers, and she said something like, you know, people are always asking me, like, because she had put an album out that same month. Sure. So people, she would say, like, you know, people were asking me, so, Lori, you got the album out, you got the book, what's next? And she's like, is that not fucking enough? <laughs> I'm like, did, that, did I not fucking yeah. do enough? Uh, so yeah. I feel like a little bit of that kinship right there where I'm like, Jesus, like, is that, I wrote a 450-page book. But on the on the opportunities, it's weird because I do feel like this book is so good and the like it's a just good storytelling and that is a that is a skill that i feel like translates to i i legitimately think that you can just set me up with like an ice skater or a politician and I spend a day with them or a week or whatever, and I could write a really good profile. Of That's them. what I was hoping to hear. I'm like yeah, really stoked to see what you're going to do from that kind I of I could do that. I do think yeah. that I'm capable of doing it. But I do think that people probably think of me in this really niche market. Like if some punk singer ever, I'm surprised nobody's ever thought of me to like profile Machine Gun Kelly or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. like I don't, <clears throat> I feel like I'm relegated to that. And in a way, I can't be upset about it because this is what I've been doing for years. But in another way, I'm like, yeah, but I could write a book about anybody. Like I could write anything, you know. Like yeah. it's just, it's just get, it's just kind of uh, getting to know somebody. And it's just asking questions. It's just like getting the story right. So, so the stories. So it's the the, mo- the older that I get, the more I'm realizing how, especially over the last couple of years, to see how people have diverged so deeply on their perception of reality as told by stories. So I'm realizing the older I get, the more I realize that we kind of inform ourselves more on stories than looking at like a spreadsheet, hmm. um, which seems, you know, redundant, but whatever. And uh, you are a storyteller and you're telling these stories. So I wonder, uh, the main reason I ask what you're going to do next is because I think of it as we put on a record and then I know that for the next 18 months I'm going to tour on it yeah. and then I know I'm going to start writing another record again. So it's kind of like, what do you do when you have this big explosion and you go forward? But as far as the storytelling goes, you're mentioning that you could tell any story. What is the about those stories that you just were so attracted to for sellout? And what like, is there a certain thing that you're always chasing after when you're profiling someone or looking for a story? Um, is it the conflict? Is the shit that you learn in school? Well, or yeah, I mean, like obviously, like everybody in the book has the same experience, right? This yeah. like indeed a major jump. You had to do that. I wanted to do Texas as the reason because they have this crazy major label story, but they never actually signed it. Ah. So like, you know, they were disqualified. So everybody has the same experience. So that's the common denominator. But, um, I think that like it does require a little bit and I don't know if people will like pick up on this cause I do feel like it's subtle, but there's a little bit of like rooting. What is this band's thing? Yes. You know, like in, in the Jimmy world chapter, I think that their thing is that they are incredibly young. Like I think they, they were the youngest people in the book. Um, distillers was a chapter built on a rift, like a divorce. And it's, it's, it's largely about, um, kind of like the dynamic between a a power couple in a way and rise against is like an underdog story. And Mike Ham is like the, 
internet pioneers. Like everybody, I think, earned their place because yes, everybody went through this, but everybody was added. Everybody can, I don't want to be reductive, but everybody can be, like in my head, I can tell you what everybody's thing is, like yeah. what the angle with them is because you don't want to just write the story like 11 same story 11 times oh, of course it that's was an, kind of like yeah. how do these vary you know and then yeah. it's like fleshing that out a little bit you wow. know yeah totally so you're looking for the thing like yeah and i can tell you like name a band and i'll like tell you like what they're what how, you know how they earned it um but i really do feel like all of the bands earned it in some way yeah. you know and yeah, there were totally. some that i i thought would be cool but i just didn't the used is a really interesting one because they never put anything out and then they put a major label record out. Yeah. And to like punk eyes, that's very sus to me. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm always like, well, how did that well, happen? Yeah. So I've, now that I've got, I've been in the music industry for like 15 years or whatever. I've seen how that has happened and how it does happen. But to look at it and be like, well, what? You know, super sus. No one, there's not a guy with a suit on and a cigar that came to a show before yeah. they released anything that was like, ah, oh, hey, boys, I like what you got going on. You know, it's uh, always put together by a manager, usually. Right. Or you have somebody whose dad works or mom works. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, he's not realizing that there's those puppet strings everywhere. I thought, see, so I thought that would be like a thing that hadn't been added to yet. Like the, you know the industry plant i I don't know what their story is so i don't want to say that but it does seem like really weird to me um but yeah so there were some some bands that i was like "Ooh, that's their thing that could be interesting um but for whatever reason just like didn't make it into the book you know cool oh yeah well so far what i've read of the book is amazing uh congratulations on putting it out thanks man i appreciate it yeah dude and thank you so much for doing this with me uh here today fucking stoked love it yeah I'll have all the information for the book and all of your social stuff in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out but uh yeah and we'll I let feel this... like Tom I feel like the Menzingers crowd is very I, I if if you if you reach one person who has not heard of this book <laughs> exactly, I, I remember yeah. I was but I what was, about my mom come on she's I probably was, gonna listen hey. I was joking about it but <laughs> I, this was one absolutely true when I was in September I was trying to line up the dates for uh, like a book, uh, book events in New York. Yeah, and I almost booked one on a day where you guys were playing LPR. Yeah, and I was like, nope, nobody will come to my <laughs> event. Like, not why will not sell one ticket if the Menzingers are in town. Like, there's not enough jean jackets in town exactly. for the both of us. Yeah, yeah, so, it's not gonna work out. <laughs> I want you know, I have to concede. Like, hey, <laughs> these guys run this town. I'm, I'm just you know, <laughs> getting the crumbs here. Hell so yeah, yeah, I feel like you're. Cra- I, I saw somebody post it from Fest this weekend. Oh, of course, I was Hell like, yeah. that's my crowd. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yes, I'm very great. I just want to say on the record, love the Menzingers fans. Thank you so much for all your support. <laughs> I feel like it's like a Venn diagram, which is like one bit circle. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Many thanks to all the Menzingers fans for for supporting my weird little writing. Hell yeah, and that's a perfect place to end it. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for yet another episode of Future Friday. This was recorded the first week of November 2021 in the basement of 89 North in Patchogue, Long Island. The intro song is Not the Only One by The Chisel. The outro music is by Pat Breyer of Queen Jesus. Thank you so freaking much for joining us, and we shall see you again soon. Goodbye. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.